Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. Administration of intravenous fluids is one of the most common interventions in patients admitted to the ICU. For the last decades, we have debated a broad range of specific topics related to the use of intravenous fluids in critically ill patients. In today's episode of the podcast, we will discuss two recently published studies, the basics randomized clinical trials, and we will address two specific questions. First, does the fluid composition, saline solution versus balanced solution, impact patient outcomes? And second, does the mode of administration, slower infusion versus faster bolus, have an impact on patient outcomes? Our guest today is Dr. Michael Connor Jr. Dr. Connor is an associate professor and senior physician for critical care medicine and nephrology. He's the director of critical care nephrology in the Division of Pulmonary Allergy, Critical Care, and Sleep Medicine at Emory Critical Care Center and Grady Memorial Hospital at Emory University School of Medicine. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Sergio. Thank you so much. It's a, such an honor and a, and a pleasure to join you uh, with this conversation, and I'm looking forward to hopefully some fun for you and me and the listeners as well. Absolutely. So we were talking on before the, uh, the podcast started that we are two baseball fans that are about to be confronted in the World Series, so we'll, we'll get to that maybe later. But the other topic that probably occupies much of your practice, since you are a nephrologist and an intensivist, is fluids. I mean, you're always probably thinking every single patient, should I take fluids away or give fluids to this patient? So definitely something that is very common in our practice, yet something that still really has, as many things we practice in medicine, so many questions around it. Absolutely. Uh, I must admit that I fall on the side of taking fluid away portion of this argument very much so, uh, but that could be potentially an interesting podcast for your listeners for a future uh, uh, episode is maybe a debate between the timing of de-resuscitation. Um, Absolutely. But certainly the administration of IV fluids is, is obviously something we do every day. So, um, and I couldn't agree with you more that, that we have maybe more questions than answers. And before we, we dive into uh, specifically the questions that we, we mentioned at the intro, I want to start maybe with a more general uh, overview. And for many years, and I'm a little bit older than you are, but when I was a fellow in training, much of the debate really centered around crystalloids versus colloids. Could you just give us kind of in a nutshell where we are today and how that has transpired? Yeah, you know, I think most of your listeners um, will recognize that at least in the United States and in North America, we primarily use uh, isotonic crystalloids as our fluid of choice during resuscitations, uh, be that acute resuscitations uh, in the ER or in the ICU uh, for most things. Of course, Obviously, if someone is having hemorrhage or hemorrhagic shock, that blood is still our preferred or a balance of blood and FFP and platelets in a massive transfusion protocol is still obviously preferred. And we've had several trials, as you know, that have attempted to try to look at the benefits of other colloids um, over crystalloids for resuscitation that really have shown no benefit. Um, the, the sort of standing and what I oftentimes teach to, to our trainees is that um, the head of starches are basically have been eliminated from practice due to some concerns around nephrotoxicity. I know there are still a few that debate that, but I think for the most part, people have abandoned the uses of head of starches. So the real question is sort of surrounding albumin um, and its role and use. And I think we can all agree that quite clearly in, patient, in certain patient populations, especially those with end-stage liver disease, uh, cirrhosis with ascites, that there is clearly a benefit to the use of albumin as, as a significant um, contributor to the resuscitation fluid in those patients. But in larger patient populations or in more general patient populations, we really have seen no clear benefit there is some studies that maybe suggest that albumin has a role as a drug 
in patients with sepsis or septic shock um, as an adjunctive therapy. Um, but it's not entirely clear that benefits are, that the mortality outcomes are clearly um, better with, with the use of albumin in that patient population. So still, I think that we primarily avoid the use of albumin um, unless, you know, there is a special population. Um, and historically, it seems that once we, we settled um, that albumin was safe, that perhaps there was no benefits in terms of outcomes in the general population, uh, a lot of research started coming out uh, discussing within the, the world of crystalloids potential differences among these, these, these different fluids. And one of the things that came up very clearly was a, a case against chloride. And a lot of people um, showing uh, observational data and making arguments of why perhaps when we give too much chloride, we might be harming patients. Can you give us your perspective on chloride and how that might be the case? Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I just quickly though want to double back to the albumin and just remind people that while there hasn't been a clear data that it's a benefit, it's important to recognize we also don't have clear data that it's a harm to patients. And you know, we do have to remember that patients who have severe hypoproteinemia for any particular reason, you know, albumin levels below the limit of detection, for example, they're not probably overly highly represented in the SAFE trial or other randomized controlled trials. So whether or not in those cases there may be a role for some limited albumin use is really unclear, uh, but you're certainly not harming the patient, you're just obviously spending more money. Um, turning to the chloride question, you know, the um, there are a lot of observational trials, and in fact, several animal and human model trials where you give volume expansion to patients and, or healthy subjects, even healthy volunteers, that demonstrate some alterations, especially in renal hemodynamics with the use of chloride-rich solutions. The idea being that the exposure to the exposure to high amounts of chloride as a strong anion, you know, has effects on the um, justicomerular reflex and other um, renal uh, hemodynamic and autoregulatory mechanisms that potentially lead to renal artery vasoconstriction and actually a decrease in perfusion. And there is, you know, quite interesting randomized uh, trials or crossover trials in healthy volunteers that sort of support that physiology. And as you know, and as you alluded to, there's a whole host of um, retrospective and even prospective observational trials um, that support the fact that there does appear to be a small increased risk of AKI in patients uh, who got large quantities of chloride-rich solutions. And so that's really what's prompted um, several trials now to be performed um, in larger sample sizes to try to look at that further. And I think this is a perfect uh, segment to go into answering that first clinical question that we were trying to, to tackle, which was, does the type of fluid make a difference we're talking about balanced crystalloids versus saline with maybe higher concentrations of chloride and perhaps a different pH. And I was thinking, Michael, that we could probably at a very high level uh, introduce some of the, the first trials, the split trial and the SMART trial before you talk in more detail about the basics trial that was recently published. Yeah, absolutely. As your readers will, or your listeners will undoubtedly know, right, the, the main difference between balanced crystalloids and 0.9% isotonic sodium chloride is the concentration of chloride as well as other cations and anions, right? So normal saline or 0.9% sodium chloride has 154 milliequivalents per liter of both sodium and chloride and actually has a fairly low pH of around 5.4 effectively, whereas our balanced crystalloids, of which there is a whole host of different types of balanced crystalloids, um, you know, contain a more normal physiologic normal levels of chloride and have some other cations and look a lot more like our, our serum does uh, with different pHs and potentially some base substrates as well, whether that be lactate or acetate or 
or some other um, compound to 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 provide a base for the patient as well. And so, you know, there's been a few prospective trials, crossover trials, and the such um, that have been done. And, and ultimately, it led to two centers or two groups really trying to do this in a more prospective fashion several years ago with the publication of both the SPLIT trial in 2015 in JAMA and the SMART trial in 2018 in the New England Journal of Medicine. So just taking those both of those um, separately briefly, so the SPLIT trial was performed in four ICUs at tertiary facilities in New Zealand, both a mixed med surge as well as a cardiovascular, cardiothoracic surgery ICU, and it randomized patients to balance crystalloid with plasma light 148 versus sodium chloride in critically ill patients. And it's actually an extremely well-designed trial. Um, they included all ICU patients who received crystalloid therapy. Their exclusion was end-stage renal disease or AKI requiring dialysis within the next 24, uh, six hours, excuse me. And their primary outcome was the development of acute kidney injury based only on serum creatinine information. And, um, you know, the trial was designed in these alternating periods of seven weeks where an ICU was assigned to use a blinded fluid, either fluid A or fluid B for all fluids during that given seven week period. And then after seven weeks, they would switch to the other ICU and they went, or to the other fluid. And they went back and forth like this for a total of four exchanges or 28 weeks. And patients who were assigned to fluid A remained on fluid A if they were still in the ICU over the crossover point. So there was really little crossover between the two groups. The trial ended up enrolling a little bit more than 2,200 people. And in short, it showed no difference um, in AKI rates between these two groups, which was a little bit surprising um, on the surface when um, this trial came out because it was really the first trial that had prospective trial that had shown no difference in AKI rates, um, showed no worsening for any one group, but uh, basically superimposed uh, lines uh, of, of survival. When people dug a little bit deeper into this trial, there were some interesting things that people noted, which led some people to wonder whether or not this really answered the question that they were intending to answer. Um, so specifically, most of these patients were admitted after elective surgery the mean time in the ICU was only one and a half days. Um, only 65% of patients were on the ventilator and the mean amount of time that patients were on the ventilator was only 15 hours. And, um, and then the average fluid amount that was received in the first day was less than two liters. And so, you know, people concluded that this probably while an extremely well done trial, didn't really address the question per se because they tended to enroll patients who were probably quite low risk for acute kidney injury in the first place. And then they didn't particularly get exposed to a particularly high amount of the solutions. And so, you know, if you have a solution like 0.9% sodium chloride that may be a bit um, nephrotoxic, for example, if it has a low toxicity, but it, the toxicity is there, if you're only exposed to a small quantity of a, of a fluid that has a low amount of toxicity, that it may not really, you may be blunting your effect size. And so, you know, while the authors concluded that there was no significant difference, I think that more correctly, it's probably can say, it's probably more correct to say that there's no demonstrable risk of 0.9% saline when used in small quantities to critically ill patients at low risk for AKI. At least the, what I feel like is the better conclusion for this trial. And it really doesn't help you if you're talking about patients at high risk for AKI with getting large quantities of solutions. So, you know, the patient with fluorid sepsis who's getting five liters of fluid and has a high risk for AKI, 
I don't know that this trial really addresses that. Excellent point. Hope, and and hope I think that makes my, sense. Absolutely. And I think it, it's important because it also illustrates how challenging it is really to design large-scale, high-quality clinical trials that answer all the clinical questions we have at the bedside with some individual patients, right? And uh, obviously, the problem is that that patient that you described is a patient that we all know, but that in order to enroll thousands of patients with under those circumstances, you probably require a, a monumental effort in terms of designing a trial. But let's let's move on to, to SMART because obviously SMART came a couple of years later, larger trial and some interesting findings here. Yeah, so, um, so you know, the SMART trial, uh, again, in the New England Journal 2018 was um, ultimately, importantly, a single center trial, but involved five different ICUs at that, um, at that center with a wide range of different types of patients because these were all subspecialty ICUs. So you had your medical ICUs, your neuro, cardiac trauma, and surgical ICUs um, as all sort of separate patient populations. And they did a very similar sort of crossover trial where a given ICU was assigned to use a particular type of fluid, either 0.9% sodium chloride or a balanced crystalloid, which could be either LR or plasmolite A. And they would use this for a month at a time. And then they, the entire ICU would move over into the other fluids. It was not blinded, importantly, whereas the split trial was blinded in terms of which solutions they were using. And their, um, and their um, outcome was a composite outcome of death by 30 days, new development of renal replacement therapy, or persistent acute kidney injury um, uh, at 30 days. And so that composite outcome is used quite a lot in the nephrology literature, and it's called the MAKE30 outcome, which is major adverse kidney events at day 30. And that always includes death by 30 days, new requirement of dialysis or persistent acute kidney injury. And so in the SMART group, they had these unblinded, uh, they had this um, solutions going back and forth um, every every uh, month. I may have misspoken. I, I apologize. I, I think I said it was an unblinded trial. I think it, it it is actually a blinded trial. I apologize that I said that incorrectly. But um, but they had access to unblinded solutions if needed based on some sort of uh, decision by the ICU team. And ultimately, this trial did show a difference in make thirty. Uh, uh, composite outcome. It's a very small difference of around 1% uh, difference in rate. Um, the the um, study did reach statistical significance, although just barely, um, and they had actually enrolled um, about 16,000 patients, which is really quite remarkable. And when you look at it all told, it was primarily driven by a small decrease in death and a small decrease in the new need for new dialysis at um, before 30 days. So this was a trial that enrolled far more patients than, um, than the split trial did uh, and uh, had a similar design, but a different um, primary outcome and showed a small but statistically significant difference. And while we don't, you know, usually get too excited about a 1% absolute risk reduction uh, or 1.1% absolute risk reduction, given the number of patients per day that we're giving IV fluids to, you can you can see where, you know, if if you're treating 90 patients with IV fluids, then it's every day or every couple of days that you may uh, that you may have a, one patient who has a better outcome. And so, you know, it's uh, it still is potentially clinically meaningful, even though the difference is quite small. So we had these two trials that showed two very different things, and it's uh, sort of difficult to sort of make clear assumptions or decisions based on these two. Yeah. And it, would it be fair to say, Michael, though, that even though the the primary uh, finding was different, they're, they're definitely not incompatible considering that A, a SMART had seven times more people, right? 
it was significantly larger. And second, it also had a, a broader endpoint in terms of using that MEG30 as a composite endpoint, primary endpoint versus mortality and AKI. Would that be fair to say that it could be explained in that way? Yeah, I think, and you know, I think for the most part, um, most people who feel strongly about these various topics and who follow these topics um, felt uh, very much as you said, which is that the SMART trial seemed to be um, maybe similarly well designed, but ultimately executed somewhat better to answer the questions that were being asked. And while the difference was small, there was a difference there. And I think people who, I mean, people who believe that chloride is dangerous would say, hey, um, you know, let's, uh, let's um, use chloride pore solutions or balanced crystalloid solutions and sort of avoid saline. And in the interim, you know, between these two trials, there were lots of other retrospective trials that also came out that, that supported this too. You know, like in sepsis, there was a, a big trial that came out that looked at how much balanced crystalloids you received and showed a pretty linear decreased risk of mortality as the percent of balanced crystalloids for which you were exposed to went up. And it, and it was divided into you know, various quintiles and just showed a continuous improvement in outcome with more and more exposure to balanced crystalloid. Not total quantities, but percentage. So 100% uh, normal saline versus 100% balanced crystalloid versus areas in between. And so you know, there's, it, it's, I think most people ultimately said split was a really well-designed trial but because it didn't end up enrolling patients that were particularly high risk for the outcome in question, and they were really exposed to quite a small amount of fluid, that despite its excellent design, the results really don't help us in any way. And I think, you know, SMART and its companion trial, which was the SALT-ED trial done in just in emergency department patients, you know, showed the same thing, which is that it seemed to be that there was this make 30 outcome that was better with balanced crystalloids. And remind me, Michael, the amount of fluid that on average the patients got in, in, uh, in SMART, that was close. I mean, it wasn't a large amount either, right? I mean, I'm sure with 15,000 patients, it averaged out probably to something not too far from split. Is that correct? Yeah, I think um, I, I actually don't have that number directly in front of me, but I think you're right on that, that it's, um, uh, it's very similar quantities, maybe half a liter more uh, total. So it's not, you know, still you're not dealing with large quantities of solutions, but you were dealing with a patient population that was much higher risk to start with. If you look at the types of patients that were enrolled, there was a far greater percentage of patients in SMART trial that were enrolled through the emergency department. More than 50% of the patients came from the emergency department um, for the SMART trial. And there was a high proportion of patients with sepsis as well. So, and those that did have surgery were much more emergency surgeries rather than elective surgeries. So they, you know, it was generally speaking a sicker patient population, which is why you may have seen a difference with a similar exposure to fluids. Yeah, and I think that it's an important point, right? Because like you said, two, two variables that are very important for us in the discussion when we deal with very sick patients are risk for AKI and death, which the sicker, obviously the higher, but also we always feel that we're giving patients a lot more than a couple liters of fluid over a short ICU stay. Now that might be a discussion for another day, what the right amount of fluid is. We can talk about that some other episode. <laughs> But those are two things that obviously, like you said, split did not really uh, tackle in the way it was designed. Excellent. Yeah. So I now we have agree. now we have a new study, uh, Basics, and uh, they actually published recently um, two uh, two separate studies that address two separate questions. So uh, very well organized, and you you had uh, the opportunity to write the editorial. So I know that you are very familiar with these studies and uh, would love to, to tackle maybe the, the first one of the studies, which tries to address the question of um, the composition of fluids, balanced crystalloids versus saline. You can tell us more about this basics trial. 
Yeah, well, importantly, um, it's important to realize that while this was published as two separate uh, articles in the same New England Journal, it was all done as one trial. And so I, you know, it's similar to another famous trial in critical care where that was the fact trial where there was this sort of two by two design where patients got randomized to conservative versus liberal as well as randomized to a PA catheter versus a CVP line. Basics did a very similar thing, which is that patients were randomized to two different arms. And so it was sort of like a two by two trial. So they got randomized to either, um, excuse me, randomized to either um, balanced crystalloid versus um, uh, a 0.9% sodium chloride with the balanced crystalloid being plasma light 148, which we can talk about a little bit later. Um, and then they also got randomized into receiving their bolus solutions quickly versus receiving their bolus solutions at a slightly slower rate. Um, and so they analyzed these two things separately and published um, one article on each of those two things. So all the patients participated really in both sides of the trial. And so the initial trial that we're at least discussing right now is the one that's comparing the two types of fluids. And so again, this was a randomized trial. They received blinded solutions. Patients were enrolled um, basically 24 hours a day uh, through all the different participating ICUs, and they received um, uh, 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 blinded fluids in 500 ml bags, and they received that same fluid throughout their time that they needed in the ICU, or the time they stayed in the ICU. And the primary outcome in this trial was not a composite outcome. The primary outcome was 90-day mortality. And they had a whole host of secondary outcomes, which obviously included many things that people are interested in, such as acute kidney injury, development of um, dialysis needs, SOFA scores between these two, um, as well as you know, length of stay, ICU length of stay, mortality, and other sorts of things. They also enrolled a huge number of patients, uh, 11, around 11,000 in, in, in total. And this was spread across, I think, almost 70 ICUs in Brazil. So it's really, you know, the authors should be really commended for doing such a tremendously um, uh, large study at many different sites, uh, you know, which obviously helps um, the generalizability of the results. Absolutely. And, and I think that that also just uh, what just hit me and is, is worth remarking is that we're talking about a total of just three large studies of 30,000 critically ill patients being studied on a topic. That is unheard of in our, in our field. And uh, really, uh, like you said, not only the, the basics team, but all these teams have really put forward an enormous uh, effort uh, to really do very robust scientific, uh, scientifically justified and designed trials, which uh, hopefully move move our field a little bit forward. So ultimately, what what did they find, and 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 what 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 what's your take on this part A of the basics trial, and how do you fit that into what we talked about with Split and Smart? Yeah. So ultimately, you know, their results were um, were uh, that there was no difference in mortality between these two groups. Um, and if you look at all their various subgroup analyses or other secondary endpoints like acute kidney injury um, or, um, excuse me, or um, uh, di uh, uh, dialysis needs, there was no difference really in any of those outcomes. So this trial, you know, sort of fell along with split, sort of saying that there was no real demonstrable difference between um, these two groups in terms of the primary or most of the secondary outcomes. Now, importantly, they did show that in the a priori decision to look at patients who had traumatic brain injury, that there was um, a statistically significant difference in survival um, in, uh, excuse me, uh, 
um, a statistically significant difference in patients with traumatic brain injury as defined not by survival, but as uh, defined by a difference in sort of neurologic SOFA score or Apache score between these two, suggesting at least that maybe traumatic brain injury patients had potentially some risks being exposed to um, balanced crystalloids as opposed to being um, exposed to uh, normal saline. And there's a lot of reasons why that could be, but it's important to recognize that this is a secondary analysis uh, using an imperfect scoring system uh, as the outcome in question being the Apache 2 Glasgow Coma Scale uh, SOFA score type of scoring system for the neurosystem. Yeah, and I think that, like you said, it, you mentioned this is a secondary endpoint, so if anything, it should generate further evaluation and studies as opposed to a conclusion that's definitive, but it also illustrates the complexity of the topic, right? Because in general, if you would say post-SMART, the, 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 the pushes towards balanced crystalloids, if anything, and now you find a subset of patients in whom perhaps that is not the right answer. So again, just showing you how complex and heterogeneous our critically ill patients are, and that ultimately it might be hard to say blanket statements, this versus that, for, for some very specific patient situations. Right. And I think, you know, similar to how we have to say that there are specific situations where colloid may be better, uh, you know, that might be the case here as well, that survival was better in those with traumatic brain injury, granted a very small proportion of these patients in those who receive saline compared to balanced crystalloid. And so, you know, there are some questions and concerns about that, and you're absolutely right. And it's not the first trial to ask that question or to have some signal of potentially um, harm in those with neurologic insults. Um, you know, the idea primarily being that the um, osmolarity of of 0.9% sodium chloride is slightly higher than the osmolarity of plasma light or LR. And so if you're using a solution that is slightly hyperosmolar to the CSF or to the serum, you're going to not potentially move as much fluid into this uh, central nervous system and potentially worsen any sort of CNS edema, you know. So that's sort of the underlying physiology behind that. But, you know, again, like you said, whether this is just hypothesis generating or enough data to really say to avoid that, um, you know, I think is a bit unclear. And we tried to say in our um, editorial that we agreed that this is um, concerning and, you know, potentially needs more study. But in the short term, probably we need to be a little bit careful about indiscriminate use of balanced crystalloids in patients with uh, central nervous system issues, like particularly traumatic brain injuries. Michael, uh, could you uh, tell us a little bit more about the balanced solution that they used in this uh, basics trial, the plasma light 148? Yeah, so um, plasma light A and plasma light 148 are um, actually really very identical solutions um, in terms of their composition, they both contain um, uh, about 140 milliequivalents of sodium per liter, five milliequivalents of potassium, 98 of chloride, three of magnesium, and then gluconate and acetate that serve as the uh, buffering agents um, uh, that serve as the buffering agents or the uh, the uh, bicarbonate sources in these in these solutions. In the United States and in Canada, plasmalite 148 and plasmalite A are slightly different with regards to their pH. So plasmalite 148 in the United States and Canada has a pH that ranges between around five and a half to six and a half, depending on the country, whereas plasmalite A has a pH of 7.4. And you're able to adjust these pHs by adding very small quantities of either hydrochloric acid or sodium hydroxide, such that you don't really affect the actual concentrations of chloride uh, or sodium in the, in the fluids. So uh, now um, we commented in our editorial that maybe this difference in pH, because, uh, because if you're using plasma light 148 versus plasma light A, uh, 
SMART clearly use plasmalite A and LR, which have a higher pH potentially than plasmalite 148. Um, and that maybe the difference in pH explains the difference in the results of these two trials or these three trials. Um, we did, however, uh, and it's very important for me to let your listeners know that we did actually make a small mistake with that, um, with that comment in our editorial. Um, it was not known to us at the time that plasmalite 148 actually has a different pH in many different countries around the world. Um, and that in Australia, New Zealand, and in Brazil, plasmalite 148 actually has a pH of 7.4. Um, why the manufacturer would have the same product name with a different pH in different countries around the world is unclear uh, to us, um, and it seems to be uh, ripe for possible uh, mistakes or misinterpretations. And additionally, the authors of these various trials did not include in their manuscripts or in previously published uh, methods papers what the pHs were of the solution that they were using. And so we incorrectly just assumed that plasmalite 148 in these countries had a lower pH. So clearly pH is not of the fluid is not, differences in the pH of the fluid is not really what's explaining the differences in these results. Excellent. And we'll talk a little bit more about ultimately the clinical implications as we close. But before we get there, Michael, I wanted to tackle the second basic study and the question regarding does the mode of fluid administration, a faster bolus versus slower infusion, make a difference? So before we, we talk about what they did in the trial and what they found, could you just give us an overall context of what are the theoretical concerns of potential implications of giving somebody a big bolus very fast versus infusing it a little bit slower? And where does this question really come from? Yeah, it's great. Um, I actually was really pleased that they did this portion of the trial. Um, I, I think this asks and answers a really important question. So um, I, like many people, you know, tend to give our boluses really rather rapidly, um, either on an IV pump or by gravity or on a pressure bag. Um, but I'll admit that when I'm in the cardiac intensive care unit, I certainly have seen patients who have suffered from uh, RV dysfunction from too rapid volume expansion of, of uh, with a cold solution, be that blood or um, crystalloid or anything else. And so, you know, the theoretical risk here is that when we give a lot of solution cold quickly, uh, that we can cause some, some RV distension and RV dysfunction and sort of potentially exacerbate um, uh, ca uh, cardiac dysfunction and hypotension or shock. And obviously not what any one of us are trying to do when we volume expand a patient. And, you know, there's really never been a great study that actually looked at how fast do we need to give the fluids? Um, you know, do you really need to give these patients fluids very fast? Or is it is it just as well to give it, you know, quite slowly um, or more slowly? Uh, and, and, you know, how does that impact outcome? And so the other portion of this trial, you know, randomized patients to either a liter an hour of uh, for resuscitation speed, so any resuscitation or boluses they got was run at a liter per hour, versus running at a third of a liter or 333 mLs per hour. And um, again, it was the same patient population, and, and there are some questions about this patient population, um, which we can talk about in general for for basics um, enrollment, but but it was the same patient population and they showed no difference in outcomes between fast versus slow infusions, no difference in any sort of meaningful outcome uh, such as dose suppressors or AKI or mortality or anything else like that. So um, I think that this, in my opinion, was almost a more useful result because it helped us know that we don't need to be too concerned if the fluid isn't running in very fast just getting the fluid in in the first place is really sort of the important aspect of that. And it's interesting because it it kind of it makes us pause and think and reconsider a very common tendency that we have in life in general that faster or more is always better, right? And especially in the ICU, I think we might feel that that urgency. But like you said, I mean, it demonstrated that there was no 
significant difference. And perhaps, I mean, obviously you need to give the fluids not over two days, but where you give it at 999 or like they did at 333 mLs per hour, probably not, not a big impact. Yeah, and I think, but I think that's important, right? Because I think we oftentimes rush to give a bunch of fluids. We feel like they have to have these, you know, large bore central lines and they have to get this all in very quickly. And, you know, rather than just getting it started through the IV that you have and, you know, getting them going on something. And if that means they need a little bit of vasopressors for a couple of hours until you've gotten enough fluid in, then that's fine, you know, and that you're not really harming the patient in that way um, by doing it a little bit more deliberately, which I think is good because if we're more deliberate, we also will have more time to, I think, assess, you know, how much more fluid does this patient really need? Whereas when we're giving it really fast, we sort of order them and before we know it, four or five liters are in and maybe the patient really only needed two or three liters. Yeah. And are there other uh, possible concerns about bolus administration versus a, a, a more a measured infusion in terms of other physiological uh, problems or endpoints? Well, you know, there's concern, obviously, that the more rapid exposure to the hyper to the high chloride solutions could potentially be, um, you know, an interesting uh, question. You know, does the kidney, if you're giving a whole bunch of chloride really quickly, is that more problematic on the kidney than doing that same amount of chloride a little bit slower? And I think those are all, you know, important questions. I, I'm not really too aware of a lot of other real concerns about the speed of it other than its sort of effect on hemodynamic function and RV function. But, um, you know, I'd be keen to learn from you if there were any other concerns that that that, that you've um, gleaned from having too rapid of an administration. No, no, and I was just curious in terms of uh, are there other things that, that, that have been published or I wasn't aware, but like you mm -hmm. said, I was also very excited when I saw that they actually did the second arm because I think it it answers a very common commonplace and practical question, and uh, that often is not the focus of a lot of these clinical trials for many reasons in terms of how these are designed, funded, etc. But I agree with you. Uh, as we close on the basics comment, I guess the other things that that I um, found interesting uh, that I would like. Your comments is that when you look at the type of patient and the amount of fluid, this looks closer to split than anything, right? Lower amount of fluids, even in the in the bolus versus store infusion, the median was 1.5 liters, which is probably lower than we're going to give most of the people that we're trying to resuscitate, at least in terms of what I see in practice. And also, it seems that it was a, a very wide range of, of patients. Yeah, yeah. Again, and I agree with you on that. That you know the 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 criticism, I think, of this trial, and again, I, I want to use that word very lightly because the authors really did a fantastic job designing a trial, enrolling a bunch of patients across many centers. I mean, they should really be commended for doing this trial and for succeeding at doing the trial. But I think they ultimately had a similar challenge in their baseline characteristics that split did, which is that, you know, these are 50% of the patients are being admitted after elective surgery. Only 20% or 22% of the patients are coming from the emergency department as an unplanned admission. Um, you know, sepsis is only affecting about 20% of the patients in this 11,000, 12,000 cohort of patients. And so again, I think one can make the argument that this is not a particularly high risk group for acute kidney injury or for that matter death, right? Elective surgeries, if 50% of your patients are elective surgery, you shouldn't be seeing a lot of those patients die. And so if your primary outcome is mortality, then you really, if you're gonna see small differences in, in, in an outcome from an intervention like this, you need to be enrolling a patient's a sample that have a really high risk of death compared to um, a planned or elective surgery cases. So it'll be interesting over time, I think, when people go back and look at this and maybe in some other uh, post hoc analyses, you know, sort of parse these patients a little bit more to try to get a better sense of, you know, did the higher risk patients have more of a problem? You know, theoretically, like you could look at high risk patients who had 
fast normal saline versus slow normal saline? Did those patients have a difference in outcome? Or normal saline versus balanced crystalloids in the particularly high risk patient populations in these groups? So I think it suffers from some of the same challenges as split in trying to answer this. But that being said, I think in total, if you look across these trials, I think we can fairly safely say that normal saline doesn't provide a harm, a demonstrable harm to the patient when used in not particularly high quantities to patients who don't have a super high risk of death. But I think the question still is out there a little bit as to, you know, in those with very high risks, you know, do we need to be at least using a combination of balanced crystalloids and normal saline? One other point I just want to point out before is that, you know, I have a lot of people who argue, well, why use balanced crystalloids at all based on these? And I would take the argument the other way, which is to say, we have no studies that have demonstrably shown a harm from balanced crystalloids. So there's no study that has ever showed that even, even if it's not statistically significant, that the summary box plot supports normal saline over balanced crystalloids. So yeah, you may not be able to say that balanced crystalloids are clearly any better, but when they cost about the same as normal saline, the counter argument is why would you use normal saline when there's clearly not, no advantage of normal saline in most patients, yeah. right? I mean. It, it's, a, it's a fascinating point and I'll share with you uh, something that has kind of stuck with me for, for a long, long time. When I was an intern, this is a long time ago, I got chewed up by a surgeon for starting a patient uh, who was going to go to the OR uh, just for acute appendicitis on normal saline. And uh, he demanded I change it to Ringer's lactate. At the time, obviously, I just thought, oh, whatever, rolled my eyes and did it. But maybe he knew something I didn't know. <laughs> maybe he had a point. <laughs> well, I, I'm a little bit younger than you, not much younger. And when I when, when I was uh, growing up, we, we had a very similar thing, you know, that surgeons used balanced crystalloids and medicine doctors used saline. And we both thought each other were crazy. But, you know, and I, I think that, you know, we don't have strong data, but we also have no real data that the medicine doctors, you know, that I trained under were right on this, right? Maybe we weren't really hurting a lot of patients, but we, we may be hurting some, and if we can't predict which ones that may not really, that may uh, be harmed by normal saline, then why use it at all? I mean, the prices are basically the same, right? I mean, these solutions are really cheap, and even if plasma light A is more expensive, you're talking about, you know, $8 instead of $2. In the grand scheme of things in the ICU, that's not you know, that's not really enough to write home about, you know, that we have a couple of cups of coffee difference in price between two patients. I don't think we should be too worried about that. Um, so, you know, I, 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 I see the argument to say, okay, there's not a huge benefit of balanced crystalloids. Maybe, maybe that's really the case. I don't know yet in the very sick patients that needs five liters of fluid, I tend to still use balanced crystalloids in that situation. But the counter argument I think is also there is, well, why do it? Because no study shows that saline is better. Yeah. So, you know, you're maybe not hurting the patient, but why should it be the first thing we reach for off the shelf? I agree. And, and to close, I mean, the discussion, the clinical part, I think it's always, uh, important to, to remind ourselves that the ultimate goal of research is action, not knowledge. And my question in terms of how does this impact our clinical practice, most of which you've answered, but just to summarize, what's your personal approach to this based on what we discussed, Michael? Well, I will be guilty of, of, of having said maybe a few years ago to my resident, you know, geez, why did you use normal saline at all? Uh, I think that I will be less um, dogmatic about that because I don't think I can really stand here and say, okay, they give them a liter of fluid and that liter is somehow poison to them. Um, I will sort of suggest that if we're giving three or four or five liters of fluid, 
that we should use a, you know a balanced crystalloid um, i tend to still use balanced crystalloids for for most resuscitations again because i don't see many clinical situations unless the patient has been vomiting and has actual hypochloremia I don't see a real role for using normal saline where it's clearly giving me an advantage in my general MICU and cardiac surgery patient populations over, um, over some of the other options that we have. So I tend to, 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 to lean on plasma light. I also think balanced crystalloids are great for other things, right? If you have a patient with horrible DKA that you're giving a ton of fluids to, if you give them a bunch of normal saline, their gap will close, sure, but it'll close because their chloride level's gone up a whole ton, not because you've actually stopped uh, the uh, the ketotic process and and you know recovered your serum bicarbonate levels. Whereas if you give somebody plasmolite or LR for your resuscitation, now your gap will close and your serum bicarbonate will go up a lot, but it, your gap will close not because your chloride has gone up a whole lot. So you know there's I think there's a lot of reasons why balanced crystalloids, you know, provide us potentially benefit, but I'm not going to stand here and tell you that you're killing your patient by giving them normal saline uh, as much as maybe I would have a couple of years ago. Yeah. And it seems that based on the evidence that we have, uh, we don't really know uh, as the amount of fluid increases is the potential and, and the risk of the patient of having AKI or mortality increases, what's the danger Right, associated with uh, with 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 a uh, normal saline, but it does seem one way that I look at it is uh, obviously it's hard to to teach old dogs new tricks, and there's a lot of this that we've just been ingrained in us. Normal saline's always been the the to go for for medical trained clinicians, like you said. But it seems that when you look at normal saline or crystalloids versus colloids such as albumin, we say, well, it doesn't seem to be a big difference in outcomes. And one is clearly more expensive than the other. Let's go with the lower cost one. Now it seems that it's kind of a, re a different, a, a reverse uh, analogy where you say, okay, balanced crystalloids versus normal saline, there's not a big difference in pricing. However, there is some evidence, and this is not bad evidence, to suggest that there might be a small benefit in, a sub in, in, in patients in getting the balanced crystalloids. Why don't we just use the balanced crystalloids? Yeah, you know, that's a good summary. I mean, I think the clinic on balance, when we do a meta-analysis of split, smart, and basics, right, when people do a meta-analysis on this, it's going to undoubtedly come together to show that there was no clear benefit for using balanced crystalloids over that, just because the effect size that was seen in smart is not going to be, over, it's not going to overcome the negative effect that you were seeing in those other two trials. So, but the, but the point is, is that no trial that I'm aware of, uh, whether it's a retrospective, prospective, or any of these randomized clinical trials, no trial has clearly shown that saline is, is definitively better for all patients. Again, maybe in a traumatic brain injury, but in general, that saline is clearly better. No trial has shown that at all. So whether since the literature still seems a little bit unclear if you're giving your patient five liters of fluid and the cost is basically the same maybe it's better to say okay at least that's my own interpretation i'm going to switch to balanced crystalloids you know rather than do all five liters with normal saline i, I agree i think that's a great point to, to stop and just remind everybody that despite thirty thousand randomized patients and three awesome trials we still have more questions than answers. And this is something that we do every single day in the ICU and probably don't spend a lot of time thinking about. It just shows how complex treating critically ill patients really is and how humble we should remain in terms of what we don't know. Yeah. And you know, it's important to remember that 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 we since we do give these things to so many patients, you know, the the smart trial, um, the SMART trial authors, you know, did sort of say in their um, in their conclusion that, you know, since um, since these solutions are applied to millions of patients every year, even though that, you know, you may impact the outcome of one in 90 patients or one in 100 patients, that's still a lot of patients and is, you know, may be clinically significant. But again, can we definitively tell your listeners that 
normal saline is definitively terrible? No, um, but I would encourage them to ask your listeners to also ask themselves honestly, what is normal saline giving me that balanced crystalloids is not also giving me? And if we don't know for sure, then maybe it's better to just you know use the balanced crystalloids. But to each their own, as you say. Excellent. We'd like to finish the the podcast, Michael, with a couple of questions that are unrelated to the clinical topic. Would that be okay? Absolutely. So the first question, and I have, I actually have traditionally three questions, but I have a fourth question for you, only for, especially for you. <laughs> wow. But the, the 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 first question is, what books uh, have influenced you significantly, or what books have you gifted often to other people? Yeah, it's great. Um, I would say one of the books that has influenced me most significantly is a book named Quiet by, um, I think it's Susan Cain. Um, it's a book about introverts versus extroverts. Um, and uh, I highly recommend that. And I've gifted that to several people. I've also gifted um, a book to a lot of speakers that I um, um invite to different conferences a book called uh, Talk Like Ted, which gives um, a lot of uh, uh, really interesting ideas on how to uh, engage adult learners. Uh, and so uh, I would encourage your readers to look at either of those two books. And we'll, we'll put those in the show notes. And and, and I really uh, have enjoyed both of these books. And, and Quiet was actually quite interesting because I think that a lot of times people misinterpret what it means to be an introvert. And uh, uh, I think that people think that somebody who feels comfortable giving maybe a public uh, presentation or somebody who might be jovial is an introvert. But really, the way what I found, Michael, is that ultimately it's where you get your energy from that defines that. And I am a, the consummate introvert. And if anything, I think that the, the amount of time that I've had to myself to think uh, during the pandemic has been the a positive server lining. But uh, obviously, some people really get their energy from being around other people. But I, I will definitely put both of these in the in the show notes, uh, both excellent books. The second question is it related to somebody that you believe to be true in medicine or in life that most other people don't believe or at least don't act like they believe? Uh, oh, wow. Can you say that one more time? Help me um, understand. Sure. I'm sorry. Is there something that you believe to be true in life or in medicine in general that most people don't believe or act like they don't believe? Oh, uh, well, I mean, in medicine, I think it's, uh, you know, de-resuscitate your patients early. Um, that, that fortunately, over my career and maybe with some excellent research that others have done and, and, and maybe a small portion of my uh, speaking on this topic, the, the ideas are changing a little bit out there. But, um, but you know, I think volume overload prevents patient recovery in the ICU. Uh, it's, and it's causative of bad outcomes. And so I think, um, you know, there's still a lot of people who believe you need to swell to get well. So that's what I would say on that one. Excellent. And like you said, that's a great topic for, for future podcasts and also <laughs> something that uh, from 2001 with the early goal-directed therapy by, 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 by New Rivers uh, paper to now has really evolved in the way we, we view and think about this, but uh, clearly something that uh, requires yeah, further discussion. Definitely. The, the third question is, what would you want everybody listening to us to know? It could be a quote or a fact and kind of like a closing thought. Oh, um, well, uh, you know, again, uh, the, uh, you need to, uh, you need to protect the kidneys to help your patient survive. So, you know, uh, de-resuscitating and being cautious about nephrotoxins, uh, is important. A nephrocentric view of critical care, uh, is good for your patients. Excellent. So the final question I have, which is only for you is what's your prediction on the World Series? Uh, uh, my prediction in the World Series will be Braves in six. Okay. Well, I will go with Astros in six, and uh, we'll <laughs> see, I mean, who pays a nice dinner next time we get together in a conference. 
<laughs> Absolutely. And again, this has been just uh, super fun. And I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, to have such great conversations with you. This is uh, obviously a topic that I love, but obviously you like too. Uh, and so I hope we can find a time to talk about other fun, uh, similar fluid related topics in the future. Absolutely. And just to, for our for our listeners, you can find Michael on Twitter at, at Critical Care Beans MD. If you want to interact with him. Oh, and, just critical, uh, just critical beans. Okay, uh, critical beans, perfect. Right. Just critical beans, MD. Uh, no care in there. Uh, it's a, it's a entendre about how oh. important our kidneys are. Excellent. Uh, critical so. beans. Yes, sorry. Critical beans, MD. And Michael, it was a pleasure. Uh, thank you for taking the time. I know you're on a busy clinical schedule today, and I look forward to talking to you soon. And um, good luck in the World Series. Thank you. You too. All right. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sound's transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.